Right. Book of Micah. Micah's prophecy is this uh, short prophecy that leads into the understanding of why Christ was born. We always read the passages in the Gospels of Luke chapter 2, and then last Sunday we were in Matthew's Gospel uh, learning about the coming of the wise men. And, you know, the wise men quote Micah chapter 5. And I want us to look at chapter 5 tonight. We looked at chapter 4 last week and kind of set the stage for what's happening here. Micah's prophecy, right, do we remember? Micah's prophecy was a prophecy at a time of... uh, Great prosperity, a lot of wealth, a lot of money, a lot of materialism. Uh, Life was good. But in the midst of all this, it was those who had all the money and all the wealth and all the power were sold out. And they were treating the poor very disrespectful. They were using them. They were using the poor to gain their own wealth. Does that sound familiar? Has that ever changed in the human condition? Uh, I think we have that no matter where we go. You're going to have those who have, those who have not, and sometimes you're going to see that those who have fall into um, just disgrace. They, they abuse the poor. That It does happen. I'm not saying that that's the condition. Of, if you have money, that doesn't mean that you're an abuser. That's where the, the modern uh, liberalism has taken it too far. Uh, it's, you're not automatically condemned because you have wealth and power. That's not what Micah is saying. He's saying that there are leaders, there are those who have wealth and power who are slapping the face of God. And we're going to look at that tonight. And we're going to see what God's response is. That's, that's laying the groundwork here. So let's look at Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall come He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then verse 5, And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at his entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for glimpses of Christ, even in the Old Testament prophets. This, this tells us that, that Jesus was not an afterthought, that you did not just send him in a rush, that Jesus was born in the right timing that you, deci- that you directed and that you decided for the purpose that you directed. 
a, a, a purpose that was established before time. And the words of your prophet, Micah, Lord, are words that I pray tonight would just give us a different launching pad into the Christmas spirit. We celebrate with joy the birth, but why is that so wonderful? And so tonight, God, I pray that you would uh, give us a perspective for where your people come from to have something to celebrate. Teach us tonight what that looks like. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so Micah 5. Micah 5 is a continuation of some words of hope. If you read Micah, I think I mentioned this last week, but just a little bit of a reminder, is that the first three chapters of Micah read like a... uh, What is that? That is the telephone. Go ahead and hang it up. I'm sorry. I I normally turn the ringer off. I apologize. Uh, Sorry. Thank you. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, where was I? The first three chapters of Micah, when you read those in context, you kind of come away thinking, God's mad at me. Do, I mean, do that. Just read the first three chapters of Micah, and you're saying, God's not happy. Now, if you are a, if you are a child of a parent, do you look up to the parent? Do you want your parents to be pleased with you? I'm not trying to put any of the children or the teenagers on notice here, but just think about it. Even, even me, I mean, I've, I've st- even to this day, uh, I don't want to disappoint my dad. And I definitely won't, don't want to disappoint my mom. I still look to them for approval. Right? If my dad looks at me, and especially at my age now, and if my dad looks at me and says, now, son, listen, I've really messed up. But that does happen. Right? But think about this. The first three chapters of Micah, if you were, uh, of, the, if you were of Judah, If you were in the nation of Judah here and you read this, if you heard Micah prophesying this, you had one of two reactions. Either you responded with fear and trembling, or you responded with, oh, well. Now, two different responses indicate two different camps here. Think about the rebellious child who is corrected by a parent and then has the attitude of, oh, well. What's the attitude of that child to the correction of the parent? They're rebellious. They really don't honor the parent. They don't really care about the parent's opinion. And so their reaction is, oh, well. But have you ever seen the obedient child who really wants to please their parents and the parent corrects them? What is their response? Fear, despair, right? Is that right? Right? So whenever, like when I was, when our boys were growing up and uh, I would correct one of them and they would cry, I hated making them, I didn't want them to cry necessarily, maybe. Maybe sometimes I did, maybe sometimes I didn't. Depended, (laughs) right? But if they were, if they were repentant, then I saw it. And what, is that not the desire of the correction, to see repentance? But if I see in a child that I correct, of course, they're not children anymore. They're up here, 
right? When they were little, if I corrected them and their attitude was, oh, well, oh. <laughs> okay, moms and dads, what is your response to a child who says, oh, well? It gets worse, doesn't it? Right? Same thing's happening here with God talking to the children of Israel. In Micah's prophecy, and it's, it, you see this in all of the minor prophets particularly, right? The minor prophets, when you read them, you're, think, you're coming away kind of depressed because that's, they're all speaking judgment for some reason. Now, we don't want to paint God as this uh, despotic dictator, mean God who's just out to throw thunderbolts to the ground. Right? That's not how we learn from this. It's not how, it's really not what God is even saying in these prophecies. And so all of this lays the groundwork for where he's coming from for the birth of the Savior, the birth of the Messiah to come. This is Micah's prophecy. So the first three chapters, Micah is just really speaking the words of God to Judah. You are in trouble. Enough said? But think about this. If you are, if you are in the, the camp of I don't care and you're the rich and the wealthy and you've gained all this power and money and property and you really don't care about God, what's your attitude going to be? Oh, well, okay, Micah, nice story, move on. But if you are the faithful, by the time you get to, through chapter 3, <laughs> if you're one of the faithful children and all you've heard for three chapters from Micah, well, of course, we know, we know when Micah was prophesying, he didn't like write chapters to distribute. You know that, don't you? He was, he was out there speaking and preaching the same message over and over and over again everywhere he would go. And what we have here is the collected writings from those prophecies. Right? So by the time, but think about it, if, if you're one of the faithful and you really love the Lord and all you're hearing from God's prophet is I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. God doesn't like me, God doesn't like me. If you're one of the faithful people, how are you going to feel at this point? Ponder that, right? If, if you have a child who is honestly repentant, do you continue to badger them? No, because that's what you're looking for. That's what God was looking for. And so by this point in Micah's prophecy, God is now speaking in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, primarily. Words of hope. Now, the, the overarching theme of all seven chapters is judgment. But at this point of Micah's prophecy, God now, for the sake of the faithful, he's giving words of hope. Now, the hope is not for the rebellious. Because if you've got a rebellious child, is there any hope for them as long as they are rebellious? Mm, no. As long as the attitude of uh, God's people are that they don't want God and are thumbing their nose at Him and we're going to do our own thing, God is telling them as a warning, there is no hope for you. But, there is hope for the faithful. See that? 
And we have to lay, this lay the groundwork here in Micah's prophecy because this plays into the Christmas story. A very important point for why there is hope in the birth of the Messiah. Right? At the end of chapter 4, um, primarily verses 11 through 13 of Micah chapter 4, Right. Micah is prophesying that Judah will be surrounded by nations. He uses the language of a siege. Right. Uh, looking here at verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. What do you think is happening here in verses 11 and 12? He is, God is speaking to the faithful here primarily that you are going to be surrounded by na enemy nations. Something is coming that is not going to be pleasant. But look here in verse 12. Verse 12, Micah 4, 12 is a verse that clearly explains God's providence even in the midst of pain. You see that? But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. How many of us have, have asked that of God? Why are you letting this happen to me? Right? You've got enemies surrounding you. You've got uh, God um, telling you uh, warnings of judgment? I don't understand, God, what you're doing. And so verse 12, it says, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Those of us who've been around agriculture, what does this mean? What, when you're gathering in the sheaves, what are you bringing in? Bring in the wheat, right? Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, right, that old hymn, right? Bringing in the sheep. And what do you do when you bring in the wheat? You've got to separate the chaff from the grain. And so what is happening, this is the imagery that Micah is using. You don't understand what God is doing, but it's like God is gathering up all of the harvest to the threshing floor, and he's getting ready to beat the wheat. Right? Verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And so what God is saying through Micah here in these verses, chapter 4, 11 through 13, is that you are going to be surrounded. You, there's going to be a siege on Judah, and my faithful are going to be trapped in the middle of it. But understand God's plan. You're going to have to endure. Endurance, perseverance leads to faith, and this is necessary to trust in this, I like to use the language, the soul-making evil that God allows. Right? It's called the, uh, the idea of why does God allow evil. Uh, one of the ideas here is, one of the arguments is that God allows evil and even directs evil for the purpose of developing our souls to draw us into faith with the Lord. Now, that's a question. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Maybe for God's glory 
by growing us to trust Him more in the midst of it. I hate that, but it's God's plan. And so then I love it, right? When we understand what God is doing, it's bearable, isn't it? When we don't understand what God is doing, we want to wrestle and fight against Him. So Micah here in chapter 4, he's laying the groundwork. Yes, there is horrible things coming, but for the sake of the faithful, he's now speaking hope. It's not hope for the unfaithful, it's hope for the faithful alone. Now, by the time we get to chapter 5, now here's the meat of the prophecy that really lays the groundwork for what's coming. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Right? God will allow foreign powers to encircle. That's what that means. Siege is laid against us. And then the end of that verse. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now let's think about this idea of slapping, striking the cheek, right? How many people like to get slapped in the cheek? Y'all don't like that? How come? Right? Is, is, is that edifying to slap somebody in the cheek? The what? It's, in, it's really, it really is belittling, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's not a new thing. That, that's always been the case in human history. Slapping someone in the cheek was more than just hurting them. It was intended to insult them. Always is. If you slap somebody in the cheek, you're insulting them. And so, in verse 1 of chapter 5, what, I think what Micah is arguing here and what God is saying here is this. He's talking about the enemies of Judah surrounding them Siege is laid against us. God's going to allow foreign powers to encircle. But here's what happened. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel. Who are, what is the judge of Israel here? This is implying the, uh, the religious leaders, those in government of the, of the time, who had become corrupt. These were the ones that God is warning. You have gone against me long enough. You've gone against me long enough. And so what God is prophesying is basically just as you as corrupt leaders have slapped the face of the weak and the poor, I'm going to allow your enemies to do the same to you. Now, if you are, if you are one of these judges of Israel that were corrupt, that's still not a very good thing for you. But if you were one of the poor who were being abused... And you heard this, oh, my enemies are going to suffer. God will avenge me here, right? God will cause the enemies of Judah to strike the cheek of the judges of Israel. So since the corrupt leaders of Judah really had slapped the face of God in their hearts and in their attitudes, in, in abusing their power, they were slapping God's face, insulting. And so God is coming back, okay, I want to give you what you've given me. You've insulted me, I'm going to allow your enemies to slap you across the face too. Now in verse 2, this leads into verse 2. Here is the beautiful hope here in the context of the corrupt leaders facing their judgment. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. I mean, that, this one verse you could preach several sermons from, couldn't you? Isn't that beautiful? The prophecy of Bethlehem. Right? We know Bethlehem is the city of David. Now, why, is Beth, why, is, why does Micah 5 2 indicate a specific Bethlehem Ephrathah? Why is that? It's because there was obviously more than one Bethlehem, right? Uh, there, it, it's, all, it's widely known that there was a Bethlehem uh, of the tribe of Zebulun. So the prophecy here is very unique. Don't confuse which Bethlehem we're talking about. The Bethlehem Ephrathah was in Judah. It was clearly the city of David, not any of the other small hamlets that might have been referred to as Bethlehem. Right? And, and we know uh, what is significant about Bethlehem. Even before Jesus was born there, what was significant of this town? Who was their, yeah, who was, who was their uh, favorite child? David himself, King David, right? And, and what is significant about King David and his relationship with God? Right? He, was, he was a man after God's own heart. God made a covenant with him, right? Uh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. The other thing that Bethlehem had a reputation for is it was clearly a small town, a backwater place, kind of like Rickman. Not much in Rickman, is there? There's some beautiful people in Rickman. They've got great coffee in Rickman. Have y'all been up? What's the name of that coffee place? Red Oak, Red Oak Oster, Roasters? Is that it? Red Oak Roasters? Have you been there? Oh, they, they roast their coffee right there. It's a really nice environment. You should go sometime. Right across the road from the elementary school. Beautiful place. But, I mean, but think about the, what is the reputation of Rickman? I don't think we have a lot of people flocking to Rickman to be seen in Rickman. Right? Or all good, for that matter. <laughs> right? Uh, but, you know, so Bethlehem was that, you want to go where? You're, you're from where? That little old place? That, that place? Rick, uh, Beth, Bethlehem, right? That little town? It was, it was a pretty rough place, too. It had a rough reputation. Um, so for a king to come, to, for this little place to be in a prophecy of this caliber, you see the difference? I mean, Bethlehem, for, for God to say, I'm going to raise up a ruler, or the King James says, a governor from you, that's pretty significant, right? Um, but why is God talking about this? Now, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, or you, uh, not, some translations say, uh, or too little to be among the thousands of Judah. That's another translation. What's happening here? God is sending from me. For you shall come forth for me. You notice that? Talking about you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. It's not just somebody who's randomly going to be born and, and be successful through right choices, right? This person who is coming is coming forth for not just any ruler, not just any governor, not just any king. God's making it very clear. 
This is my direction. This is my plan. This is my doing. Period. And for me. The idea of for me there in, chapter, in verse 2 is a clear connection back to God's keeping His promise to David. This ruler is coming for me because he's going to fulfill my covenant. Does God ever go back on His word? No. If God ever went back on His word, He wouldn't be God. That's, the, that's, one, of his na- that's one of His characteristics. It's part of His nature. God's not going to lie. He's not going to promise something and renege on it. So this is part of what's happening here. Okay. But what is, this, what, what is at the core of the Davidic covenant? God's promise to David was that there would, there would come from the line of David a, a ruler above all rulers, a king above all kings, not just to sit on a throne in a palace, but to bring what? Y'all can Let's have a little interaction. What, what is the purpose of the Davidic covenant? What did God promise? What's coming? Salvation. Right? I mean, from the very beginning of, of, of the Davidic covenant, right? In 2 Samuel, God said, I want to give this to you. Salvation's coming through you. Right? So, anyone who would have heard Micah's prophecy here would have had that in mind as well. Our salvation is being prophesied now. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution, God is allowing this so that we will be saved. Wow. That's amazing. Right? Now, it's also interesting here in verse 2 where we're speaking about the one who's to be ruler in Israel. Where does this person come from? Whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. Right? That, that's a, I think that's a clear indicator of the origin of Christ. That was, was Christ created for this purpose? I would say no, because Christ is not created. That's an important theological point, <laughs> right? You see where point? Because you and I, when we are born, we are created, right? We don't have an origin that is from of old and from ancient of days. My origin is, at best, 51 years ago. That's, that's nothing compared to time. Correct? I, I think this, this line here at the end of verse 2 is, is significant to point to Christ's eternal nature. He was there. He, all things were created through Him, by Him, and for Him. You remember? And so... This ruler who's coming through Bethlehem, who's coming for God, coming, coming forth for God, who has an origin that is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, I think there's, there's a dual meaning here. The origin is from of old, from ancient days. Clearly, it's pointing to the, the days of old, of, uh, you know, the time of David. I think that's a clear direction there. I mean, whose origin is from of old. But I think there's a dual purpose here, also talking about Jesus, who was begotten, not born. Y'all remember that specific clarification. 
Jesus, even though was born of the Virgin Mary, that was not his origin. There is a very clear doctrinal issue here that the, that the church wrestled with for the first three centuries. How do we think about Jesus' birth? Right? And there was a council where the church decided, I mean, you know how when theologians, have you, anybody ever been in a room with a bunch of pastors? Do you want to just like run away? Because what, what are all the pastors talking about? If they're good pastors, they're talking about biblical stuff, and they're dealing with wrestling with doctrine, right? Um, so you can imagine in the earliest days of the church when the church was still forming doctrine. How do we think? How do we know? How do we understand this faith of ours? Because it was such a mystery, right? Um, this idea of Jesus' origin was a very important point because if we got it wrong, we got the whole faith wrong. If Jesus was created, if he was made, if, he was, if his origin was when he was born, then he was a second thought of God, and he was more man than God. But if Jesus was begotten, that's a significant term. And I mean, church, the church fathers in the first three centuries wrestled with the language here for a long, long time. <laughs> To the point that um, there was a heresy that was really rising up in the church that Jesus, in order to be fully human, had to have been created. He was born. Well, the church determined, and I think this is right doctrine, and this is another evidence of it here in Matthew or Micah 5, 2, that Jesus had an origin from of old, from ancient days. He was begotten, not born. Even though he was born, that was not his origin. That's important for us to know about Christmas because we celebrate the birth of Jesus, right? Little baby Jesus. Let's celebrate. And that's worship. Hallelujah. Let's do it. Let's focus on the birth of our Savior. But let's understand the significance of that birth. It, it, that was not his beginning. He was of old from ancient of days. He was begotten because he was coming forth for God. Wow. That'll, that'll keep you up at night. Right? These words are really continuing a, a preparation to the faithful who were left in Judah to endure the suffering that they were going to face. Because think about this, if, if a ruler like this was prophesied, when would you want this ruler to come? Can we come by tomorrow morning, God? I, I'll give you that much grace, God. I'll, let, I'll give you until tomorrow morning to follow through on your promise. And if God takes longer than tomorrow, are we going to still be faithful that God is prom God's promise is true? How many of us wrestle with that? Wrestle with God's timing. See, so these are words of hope to the faithful that God's promise is eternal. If the going forth of Christ is from eternity, then Christ will not come quickly. And that's going to be another part of God's patience. He's teaching His remnant patience. 
I'm giving you a promise. Trust me. He will come. And so if God has from the beginning determined to give his people this ruler, then God from the beginning has determined to give his people an eternal king. So this this prophesied ruler in Micah 5, 2 is clearly not just any king coming. This is going to be an eternal king. And, And the idea of eternity is no beginning, no middle, no end. I like to use the, this definition of, the, of eternity. Eternity is defined as an ever-present now. When I, when I discovered that definition a few years ago, that really stuck with me. That makes, that gets it. I don't get, I mean, I've never experienced an ever-present now, but that helps define eternity. It's an ever-present now. You can't define that. Because our understanding of time is, on, is linear. Eternity is not linear. It just is. Now, I'm going to let that blow your mind for a minute. Do what? <laughs> right? So God, who has promised this from eternity... This was not... I mean, this was God's original plan. God determined from the beginning that... This king, this ruler would come. His son, Jesus Christ, would come in this manner. He knew this from the very beginning before time. Eternity. That'll blow your mind. Verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Right? This describe, does this not describe Jesus to a T? You see, you see Jesus in these words? Now, we're, we, we have an advantage on this time of history. We look back on this now, and even the, uh, the, the, the apostles who wrote the New Testament look back on this prophecy and, and tied it all together for us as well. But this ruler in Micah chapter 5 is serving as a shepherd. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. Now, what's the significance here of the flock in verse 4? What's the theme of Micah? You have two people. You've got the rebellious, sinful, in trouble children. They're the, they're the trouble child. And then you've got the faithful children, the, the remnant, the loyal, the faithful. And so who is this, who is this leader coming from verse 2 going to shepherd? And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. I think what Micah is indicating here is that this flock is the genuine flock. The ones that endure the suffering, that endure the hardship, that endure God's judgment. Because God is giving them hope. Just know that this is coming for something better. And this shepherd is, will eventually shepherd you. This shepherd is going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord so no longer will uh, God's faithful, no longer will God's remnant 
be under the thumb of corrupt, sinful rulers. They're going to be shepherded by a shepherd in the strength of the Lord. God Himself will be their shepherd. You see that? In the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, and they shall dwell secure. See, if you are some of the faithful here, the faithful remnant, you're definitely uh, not in a safe place. You're living in turmoil and, and war, and you've got enemies surrounding you. You've got oppressive uh, rulers and uh, landowners. Your life is not safe. What kind of hope would you have if you're given this promise? You're, you're not secure. You're in a dangerous dwelling, but God is promising a leader will come and bring security to you. How many people like to be secure? Anybody like that? Yeah, I, I, I kind of like my comfort a little bit. I don't want to get too bored, though, in my comfort. Anybody like that? If you get too comfortable, you want to shake things up a little bit. Some people don't like that, but I think all the men are going, yeah, let's go get an adventure. Right, guys? <laughs> but our, we do like security. We like safety. And if we don't have safety, if we don't have peace, we don't have security, and we are given a prophecy, a promise for it, how are you going to feel about that prophecy? That's going to be your hope, isn't it? That's what this idea of Advent is. That's why I want us to, to understand what Micah is laying out here in his prophecy. We, Advent comes from this, you're, from a, you're in a place of despair, and you're looking for the hope. You're looking for the answer, the promise that's going to uh, rescue you from it. That's what Advent is, right? That's what Advent is. So look here, let's go and continue here in verse 4. In the, uh, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then verse 5, and he shall be their peace. You see, this idea of peace, I think we've got it wrong at Christmas time. I think we've got it wrong at Christmas time. This peace is Christ himself. Verse 5, and he shall be whose peace? He shall be their peace. But who are they? It's the faithful. It's the remnant. It's the ones that God is protecting. These are the words. God is not speaking at this point of Micah to the ones who are the rebellious children. He's now talking to the faithful children. See, so there's a difference here. So this idea of peace on earth, goodwill toward men, I think is misunderstood biblically. Christ's coming was not for peace for all of the world. It's peace for the faithful. Because, let's face it, there's a lot of people in this world who, would, who, are, who are currently rejecting Christ and His peace. Can we say yes and be honest there? So is that peace for them if they don't want to live in peace? Is that peace for them if their whole purpose is to um, reject God and slap Him in the face? Right? That's what this prophecy is talking about. 
and he shall be their peace. There, or, or the they there in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. They are his flock, the genuine flock, the ones who are faithful and have come through the suffering and the persecution, through the, uh, the rubbing of the chaff, right? When you gather in the sheaves, you're going to separate the waste from the, from the grain. Those who receive this peace, who benefit from this peace, the shepherd's going to give his peace only to the grain, the true church, right? The genuine flock. And so, if we are in that place, if we are the ones that God is keeping safe, then we shall all be satisfied with this protection of the king. If we are, if we have are in this place of suffering and persecution, yet we are loyal and faithful to the Lord, then we will be satisfied when this king who comes brings protection. Because that's our protection. Because we can't provide protection for ourselves, but this king will. And so this peace of Christ is something that Jesus will drive away all hurtful things because Jesus is armed with strength and power. So this peace of Christ here why is it that we trust Christ's peace? What does, what, what kind of, what does Christ bring to the table here that we see as peaceful? Right? This ruler that is being described here in Micah chapter 5, who we know is clearly Jesus, Jesus will drive away all of the hurtful things because he's going to protect his flock. Even if some suffering comes, it's for a purpose. It's not for your destruction it's for your edification. It's for God's glory. So, so Jesus brings the peace that drives away all of that harm. And the way he does this is Jesus is armed with strength and power be above all strength and power. Right? He's not just some earthly king. This is someone special. Now, more importantly here, this peace that I think Micah is talking about here that God is declaring is this peace of reconciliation with the Father. Is that, right? So this, this, this ruler, this governor, this king who is Christ, he's there to protect the flock. He's there to rescue the flock, but to reconcile us with God. That's the greatest peace of all. Now, who is reconciled with the Father? Not the whole world. Now, I mean, clearly in, in the Gospels, whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But even in that verse, that's not everybody. It's whosoever believeth in Him. It's not whosoever. It's not all. It's whosoever very specifically Believeth in him. That's the old King James. I'm sorry, that's the way I memorized it. Okay? But that faith, that trust in this eternal king who's coming, that's our hope, that's our peace, that's our security. And that's what's happening here in Micah. Right? So, yes, let's celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus, but let's celebrate for the right reason. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our salvation. He's our strength. He's our peace, right? Amen. 
I mean, that just, there's not much more to say there. <laughs>